It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. On Monday night, the Democratic National Convention began with prominent speakers like New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, former Ohio Governor, Republican John Kasich, Senators Amy Klobuchar, Catherine Cortez Masto, and Bernie Sanders. Tonight's final address, given by former First Lady Michelle Obama, where she delivered an extensive critique of President Trump's first term in office, narrowing in on the administration's response to COVID-19. Our socially distant panel anxiously awaiting to discuss. But first, Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey has been following the candidates on the campaign trail, and this convention gives us an update. Kamala Harris is expected on-site here at the Chase Center in Wilmington following a Secret Service sweep ahead of her remarks here. Dr. Jill Biden is teasing her remarks on Twitter with this, quote, How did you get this number? Those were the first words I spoke to Joe when he called me out of the blue on a Saturday in 1975. Two former presidents are also expected to speak on Biden's behalf, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, whose paths to 270 electoral votes Biden has been trying to emulate for months. The only Democrats to win the presidency is where we have overwhelming support from the African-American community and don't take it for granted. That was true for Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. Biden has been staying home during most of the convention, which is being staged about 20 minutes away from his place in Wilmington. On Tuesday, he hosted a fundraiser with Tom Hanks, and he does plan to keep dropping into some digital watch parties for state delegations who have been asked to keep their people away from here. Biden doesn't have any events away from the House on his public schedule until those remarks accepting the nomination on Thursday night, although the campaign told us as things started to kick off to expect some surprise appearances. In Wilmington, Delaware, Peter Ducey, Fox News. Peter, thanks. In Washington, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has called on the House to return to session on Saturday to vote on a bill that would grant funding to the United States Postal Service as they prepare for an influx of mail-in ballots this year due to the election taking place amid a pandemic. President Trump indicated on Thursday he would sign legislation increasing funding to the U.S. Postal Service, however, maintained his position that mail-in ballots could lead to potential voter fraud. President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, clarifying, saying the president of the United States is not going to interfere with anybody casting their vote in a legitimate way, whether it's the post office or anything else. We're recording this prior to night two of the Democratic National Convention, where we'll hear from speakers like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, former President Bill Clinton, and Dr. Jill Biden. We'll start there with our panel. National political correspondent for NPR, Mar Liason, founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon, and AEI resident fellow, Matthew Connetti, and Washington Post columnist and AEI resident fellow, Mark Thiessen. Mara, your thoughts on the the first night, what Democrats are looking at and how they think maybe it launched off? Well, I think Democrats are pretty happy. There were no technical glitches. They got a lot of, a couple defenses of Joe Biden. One was a character defense, talked a lot about his, how decent he is, how empathetic he is. And then you had this surprising, maybe to some, policy defense from none other than Bernie Sanders, who was his ideological opponent 
but he seemed to think that what Joe Biden wants to do on health care is fine. He praised him. Uh, he sent a signal to his supporters that they should get on board in a way he didn't in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. Uh, and then you had Michelle Obama, who right now I think is the most effective communicator that the Democratic Party has. And she was telling people maybe who aren't so enthusiastic about Joe Biden that, you know, I hate politics. So it's kind of kind of like she was saying, I'm like you, you're like me. We don't like politics, but Joe Biden is the right choice here. Donald Trump is a danger to our nation. So I think bottom line, Democrats are pretty happy with the first night and we'll see what happens as the days go on. Yes, but viewership is down year over year, uh, Matthew. And one of the interesting things policy-wise is that you watch Bernie Sanders and he essentially said, listen, we've won. Uh, Joe Biden has accepted a number of policy things from the progressive side, the left side of the party. And, you know, and then he went through and got pretty specific about policy issues, which was directly counter to what John Kasich was saying at his video at the crossroads, which was, don't worry, Joe Biden is not going to go far left on these issues. So I think you wrote, Matthew, there was a bit of like a ping pong match, yeah. uh, at least policy wise. No, there was, and I think it kind of contributed to a sense of incongruity and uh, kind of a scattershot nature of this uh, first night of the convention, Brett. Um, the speakers ran the gamut, like you said, from Kasich and, you know, Meg Whitman to Bernie Sanders. And there was, it seemed, uh, the messages were one after the other. It seems like the producers are determined to make every single anti-Trump argument they can, and whether that's coronavirus, whether that's the condition of the economy at the moment, whether that's um, the racial reckoning and the civil unrest, um, they kind of go from issue to issue uh, in an almost random pattern. Uh, so I, I think this will present problems for the Democratic ticket going ahead, because the truth is Bernie had much more substantive evidence to make his case that uh, Biden and Kamala Harris will govern in a ways pleasing to uh, Bernie and his supporters than John Kasich, who made just a very general argument on the basis of Biden's character. But one thing we know about Biden's political character anyway, not so much his personal character, but his political character, is that he's always been determined to be at the center, not of American politics, but of the center of the Democratic Party. And that center has moved left quite a bit, and Biden is running to catch up. Mark, your thoughts on um, substance and the show? I think uh, Donald Trump and the Trump campaign love the Bernie speech. <laughs> I, think they, I think they want to put it on autopilot. They're going to be quoting Future Trump. ads. Yeah, future ads, absolutely. I mean, look, this is, uh, you know, as you said, John Kasich out there saying, don't worry, he's going to be centrist. Uh, this is obviously why they've chosen Joe Biden, uh, because he, he's this, uh, the left sees him as their Trojan horse. Uh, he's keeper, they want, they want voters to look at this moderate, reasonable, uh, bipartisan exterior uh, when hiding inside is an army of socialists. And as soon as the voters let him through the White House gates, they're going to come rushing out uh, to impose Bernie Sanders' vision on America. Um, and so having Bernie Sanders essentially say that, not quite as floridly as I just did, but saying that, yeah, that's, what, that's what's going to happen uh, is pretty good for Donald Trump. Mara, what about the presentation? Obviously, we're in a different time. It's a virtual deal and it's something we've never seen before. But I don't know, middle America, do they, are they getting with Eva Longoria? Yeah. I mean, the Desperate <laughs> well, Housewives, is that, is that selling? <laughs> Well, this is the big question. I don't know the answer to that. I'm waiting to see polls and ratings. And this, it looked like a very highly produced Zoom call. And 
so I don't know how people are reacting to that. On the one hand, uh, the reason why the virtual convention was good is you didn't have to see Bernie Sanders supporters booing or crying in the stands. All of that kind of internal dissension was not on television. On the other hand, they were also able to include dozens and dozens of more kind of ordinary people than they would have in a regular convention where they would have had to give much more speaking time and many more speaking slots to, to VIPs. So that was good. But in terms of as a television watcher who's maybe open-minded about the choice in the fall, looking at that for two hours, I don't know how people reacted. I'm dying to find out. I'm sure there were focus groups done and we're waiting to see some evidence. Um, one thing they did do is every speech was really, really short and it moved yeah. along very fast clip. And I think that was probably helpful. Well, a lot of them, almost all of them were on tape. And uh, right, that's, that's, that's a, different, uh, a different deal. I always think that live is presents the you know prospect of failure or calamity and at least it makes it very you know you're on the edge of your seat that somebody's just gonna forget something or there's gonna be some <laughs> kind of moment or something uh right. but it's all on tape and, and you can't yeah, really and there was no the audience tape. and there was no audience so you couldn't see how ordinary people were reacting yeah um matthew i've heard people talk about it as an infomercial i've heard people talk about it as a telethon um is the RNC, do you think, learning from this week, or do you think they already have their things set? Uh, well, I think uh, knowing uh, the way that uh, the Trump campaign, the Trump administration operates, I'd imagine there's a lot of improvisation going on, Brett, and I, I'm sure there <laughs> will be changes uh, happening up until the very last minute uh, of, of the convention uh, next week for the RNC. There are some lessons to take here, but we have to also understand, I mean, we are kind of constrained by circumstances. There's just not a very good way to put on this sort of event uh, and to give it the sense of, you know, liveliness and spirit and uh, unpredictability one finds in a, in a, what was a normal, so to speak, political convention that's, that we've had every four years for so long. Um, I, the truth is it was kind of a somnolent event. It was, it was kind of boring up until the minute Michelle Obama began her speech. And I do think that was the highlight of the evening and just took up 18 minutes. So if anything, I think that you could do less programming, uh, you know, and just maybe, maybe focus on the key speeches, the ones that you know will make an impact from your best kind of orders. Um, and that, that applies to both the Democratic and the Republican parties. In the meantime, on the big controversy about the post office, the postmaster general now saying, Mark, that he's going to pause any efforts to try to uh, trim the sales of that organization or to uh, reform it until after the election because of all the controversy. Uh, Speaker Pelosi saying she's still moving forward with this bill uh, to independently fund the post office. What about this controversy and where it is? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's the biggest made-up controversy since the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory uh, in 2016. I mean, first of all, there's no need for mass uh, mail-in voting. Dr. Fauci just said on Friday that there's no reason that you can't go. Most people can't go. It's like going to the grocery store. If you can stand in line, paraphrasing, but if you can stand in line for, uh, for milk, you can stand in line for your ballot. Um, but the Democrats are pushing forward with it anyway because uh, they're concerned that their voters aren't going to show up. I think the Wall Street Journal today said that uh, 66% of Democrats plan to vote by mail and only, I think, 11% of Republicans, or some much smaller number, uh, plan to vote by mail. So this is a big, uh, the Democrats are counting on mail-in voting uh, as, being their, uh, as being their ticket to the White House. And they're, you know, and so they want to set up a situation where if mail-in voting fails and it it's never been tried at this scale. 
the, there's an MIT study that shows it has a 21, in 2008 election, that it had a 21% failure rate of, of ballots not getting cast. They want to be, blame Trump. Uh, so they've been setting up this, uh, this pretext uh, to, to blame Trump and discredit his victory if he ends up winning uh, a second term. Uh, Mara, I mean, is this kind of, uh, the controversy is fizzling as, as we, the Postmaster General has said what he said and, the, and Congress looks like they're going to come back and do the funding? I think, yeah, I think if there's funding and people don't see mailboxes being removed, look, I, let's do a thought experiment. What if the president hadn't said that he was adamantly opposed to mail-in voting, that mail-in voting, if, if it was used in a widespread way, it would mean the election was fraudulent, and that he was opposed to giving the post office any additional money it might need to conduct increased mail-in voting. If he hadn't said all those things, would there have been this huge controversy? I don't know. I mean, I think that he kind of created this himself. You know, well, guess what? I mean, that's, that's called Tuesday. He creates a lot of things. Yeah, but, but if he hadn't, you know, the post office could have explained what it was doing. You even had a former Democratic post, postmaster general explain that the post office has the ability to do this. So uh, the statistic that I lo loved was that if every single American voted by mail, it still wouldn't equal the number of packages and letters that the post office processes at Christmas. In one so, day. In one There's day. There's 471 yeah, million pieces yeah. of mail that they go through yeah. one day. You but mean 130 million ballots? They're going to yeah. screw yeah, up in Trump, a month? But, but, but all there were all these pieces. There was Trump saying he didn't want mail-in voting and he didn't want to give money to the post office. Then the postmaster general happens to be a mega donor to Trump, who also happens to have had, I don't know if he's completely divested, had in you know, um, investments in compet private competitors to the post office. It was just a kind of scandal waiting to happen. Yes, but unfortunately for some Democrats who really played it up, Matthew, some of the pictures that surfaced were mailboxes that were taken off for, you know, cleaning or something, and they were thrown in with pictures of Donald Trump's taking these down. And then the stat that President Obama closed 3,400 post offices, you know, and the, the Trump administration was not looking to do that. It just seemed to just go away here at the end of the week. And this is the paranoid political imagination at work, Brett. I mean, reading malevolent intent into all of these discrete events is kind of textbook conspiracy thinking. And look, sure, Trump uh, says he was against mail in voting. That's a policy position. But then to connect the dots kind of like with, uh, you know, on, like on a big blackboard uh, and, and say that there's some kind of plot going on uh, to suppress the vote in this election by stealing mailboxes and, um, uh, you know, turning off mail sorting machines. It, it, it just, it kind of beggars belief. And I think that's the reaction many people had to it. I also, one thing that's been overlooked in a lot of this conversation is this is union politics at work too. You look at all the reasonings for the past two weeks, again and again, postal union officials, what's their number one complaint? The postmaster general has canceled overtime. There's money at stake here, and it's not an attempt to, to steal the election. It's an attempt for people to get a bigger paycheck. There's nothing wrong with that, but we should acknowledge that there is self-interest at work here on all sides. We'll hear from our panel after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. All right. So, Mark, looking to the rest of the convention and 
what, what it may look and sound like, how much will be continue to make the case against Donald Trump and how much will be to make the case for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in a policy perspective way, do you think? Well, I guess the if, if, if past his prologue, the first uh, first day is any indication, it's all about Donald Trump. And, you know, if you want to start a if you want a, a fire to spread, you put you pour a gas on the flames. And what's driving Democratic voters is is not pro-Biden sentiment, it's anti-Trump sentiment. The vast majority of Democrats are not not excited about casting the ballot for Joe Biden. They're, vote, they're excited about getting rid of Donald Trump. And so that creates one kind of a, you know, one kind of a convention. I think next week, you're going to see a very different kind of convention from the Republicans, uh, because there is a lot of pro-Trump enthusiasm in the in the Republican base. I think they're going to be talking a lot about the president, his accomplishments, uh, what where the economy was before the uh, before uh, the pandemic hit, uh, the steps he's taken uh, to on the pandemic, and and you know they're going to ask a question: Do you want to go back to the economy you had five months ago, or do you want to go back to the economy you had four years ago? Um, and I think they're going to have audiences too. I think it's going to be a very different look. I think the president and uh, the vice president may 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 find you just saw the president the other day in, in Minnesota and other places speaking in front of an audience having a he said it's not a rally. It's a it's a peaceful protest. But I think we might have some uh, peaceful pro Trump protests at some of those speeches, too. Yeah. Uh, so the ratings are out, Mara, and they're significantly down from four years ago. Uh, the Biden campaign will argue that more people were streaming and there's other avenues to get to this. Uh, but just from television, it's down. Uh, significantly. So. Yeah, that, do- that doesn't surprise me. And I haven't talked to any Democrats who think that Biden will get much of a bounce out of this, even before it started. Um, I don't know, you know, a c- conventions in a pandemic are just a whole different beast. And, he didn't really uh, get a bounce out of Kamala Harris, though, either. I mean, there have been some polls since the announcement. Which this, that, really... this race has been very static. What has given anyone a bounce? I mean, it's been pretty, pretty stuck for a long time. Yeah. What about the president, uh, Matthew, and where, you know, he's bouncing around the country and counter uh, programming uh, and, you know, getting back to some of the uh, campaigning of old in some of these speeches, it seems, uh, smaller, many people with masks, some without at some of these outdoor venues. Um, What about his efforts to counter program the DNC? Well, the spotlight's always on President Trump, and that's where he wants it to be. But I do think it'd be helpful for his reelection chances if he allowed more attention to be paid to Joe Biden, not only Joe Biden's um, gaffes, uh, but also this uh, real dilemma, I think, at the heart of uh, Biden's candidacy, which is he won the primary as a moderate who would restore normalcy to our country. But he's since swerved left. And uh, whether that's in the policy recommendations that he took on from Sanders whether that's selecting Kamala Harris, who, you know, she's not a Sandernista, but she is no moderate, as many in the media attempted to describe her last week. Um, there, is, there is every indication that Biden has moved left, and I think farther to the left than the median voter in this country. And so it's very important for Trump to emphasize that. Um, even at Mark's right, there's a lot of enthusiasm for him among his voters, for, for Trump, among Trump voters. But for, those, for the swing voters, for the independents who are always the key to an election, I think Trump needs to emphasize uh, the risky nature of allowing four years of progressive governance in the United States. Yeah, Mark? 
I agree with that. And I think uh, what he has to double down on is what he's what he's been doing since this shift a few weeks ago when he started his briefings again, where he has been basically uh, controlling himself, <laughs> not getting into fights with reporters uh, and and being presidential, laying out the case and the numbers of what, you know, laying out the numbers and what they're doing on the pandemic, laying out the numbers on the economy, being very factual and, and presidential. You know, uh, Michelle Obama said the other day, uh, that uh, Donald Trump has shown he can't be the leader we need him to be, right? Uh, I think in the last few weeks, people are seeing that they maybe Trump can't. He's t- taken a change in tone. And I think that if he carries that into the convention, and there's a lot of voters out there who know it's in their economic self-interest to vote for Donald Trump, even though they don't like him. He's got to give them permission. He's got to create a permission structure for those voters to vote in their own self-interest, in addition to rallying his base. And so I think he needs to tell that line in the convention speech. And, and those swing voters have to look and say, this is a guy I can live with for four more years because my 401k depends on it. Yeah, I mean, arguably, Mara, the, the economy is moving along. It's been supercharged, obviously, by the, the Fed's actions and by the, yeah. uh, the stimulus that and who knows about a second stimulus. Well, but the S&P, for example, closed, uh, closed uh, Tuesday at a new all-time high, erasing its losses from the yeah. start of the pandemic. Yeah, that's really something. And with the exception of a few recent polls, Donald Trump has had a pretty consistent advantage on the economy over Joe Biden. That's been his kind of ace in the hole. But, you know, something that Mark said, which is important to remember, is during the last three weeks of 2016, Donald Trump behaved himself. Uh, You know, he took advice that he should be disciplined and stick to the message, and he did. And so he is capable of doing that. Um, But I do think that every convention of an out party has always been a a takedown of the guy in office. And I wouldn't expect this Democratic convention to be any different. But I do think that the Republican convention has to be more than just, you know, warning, uh, banging on the drum and, and sending out warnings of what will happen if the Democrats get into office. They have to make a positive case for Trump and for his vision for the future. And Matthew, last thing, I mean, if we get an indication that the COVID rates are going down. In New York, for example, 11th straight day um, at the infection rate at uh, less than 1%, 20 million people in the state of New York. Uh, you have some indications that hospitalizations are coming down in some of these states. If we start seeing COVID turning and at the same time see the economy sort of bouncing back up, that changes the dynamic heading into November 3rd, doesn't it? I think to some extent the dynamic is already changing. I think we've seen a tightening of polls in recent days. The CNN battleground poll, for example, uh, was shocking, I think, to a lot of people. Um, it's somewhat of an outlier, but not, not really all that much. The race is always, point. yeah, it's always been much closer in the battleground states than nationally. And uh, so this is a competitive race even now. I think if you subscribe to the assumption that Trump's best path back is an electoral college victory, right? So, uh, yes, I, I think COVID is the dominant issue for many, many voters. Um, and if he's able to handle COVID, given his advantage in the, on the economy, uh, Trump would be very competitive in the final weeks of the election. And can I throw in to, on that? Uh, that yeah. There's also the October surprise, which is Trump could walk out into the Rose Garden and say, ladies and gentlemen, Operation Warp Speed has been a success. We have a vaccine. Um, because and it's ironic because there's some there's some reports recently that the surge in cases is actually according to Dr. Fauci could take weeks if not months off of the development of the vaccine because they need 
they need surges in order to test the vaccine. And so it takes a shorter time to develop, a, to, do, to go through the phase three trials if you have a surge of cases in a certain area. So we could actually, because of the surge, have a vaccine before election day. And that would be the greatest public health achievement in human history. Uh, that would be the fastest a vaccine has ever been uh, created. And if Donald Trump can take credit for that a couple of weeks before the election and all the things you said are happening, I think that he's he's in very good shape going into election. Mara, I have, have heard uh, Democrats start to phrase it like uh, ask the question when you were getting the vaccine, not if there is a vaccine. So maybe preparing for that eventuality or possibility that there will be one before election day. Yeah, I think that what Donald Trump needs is for things to be going in the right direction. Maybe a vaccine doesn't have to be widely distributed or uh, the economy doesn't have to be back. But if people feel that that COVID is becoming uh, soon to be in the rearview mirror, that they're going to be able to get a vaccine in, in the coming months, I think that will do a lot for him because I think voters were willing to cut him a break. They're not blaming him for the pandemic. They are holding him responsible and accountable for what he did during it. But um, yes, I think that events will make the difference in the fall. All right, panel, thank you. Here's a bit of campaign trivia for you. August 21st, 1972, the Republican National Convention took place in Miami Beach, Florida, where the Nixon Agnew ticket was solidified for re-election. It was at this convention where First Lady Pat Nixon gave a speech, which was the first time a First Lady addressed the party's national convention in over 25 years. Pat Nixon also became the first Republican First Lady to speak at a national convention, setting a standard of tradition for convention speeches from political spouses for both parties. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Mara and Matthew and Mark, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.